Today we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39 where we see Joseph becoming um, a slave. He gets enslaved. Um, but if you can pull up that graphic, Ryan, that picture, I think what we also see is Joseph um, becoming not just a slave, but echoing at the end of the story. Thank you, Paul. Let's just, from now on, we'll just shut that door. We've had a couple of um, confused people looking for service. It's very excusable. So, and if they're coming to church, that's a good thing. If they want to be at church, they're looking for any way to get into the building. So praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. So what we have here is the Joseph story graphically arranged. And uh, I, showed with you, uh, I shared with you this a couple of weeks back about how um, the Genesis story has this echoing pattern. Um, the Joseph story has this echoing pattern that goes on. You see, for Jewish people, they knew this story of Joseph not just as it was written down, but they also knew the story by heart. They were an oral tradition, an oral culture. You learn this story at grandmother's knee. So you say, oh, Joseph, I know this story. When this happens, um, you were meant to know the outcome of this story. But what happens is um, the way that this story is written, the, the narrative is, is told, is that you have this kind of echoing pattern that happens because when you read the beginning, you hear something familiar at the end. For example, today we're going to talk about Joseph becoming a slave to the Egyptians, but by the end of the story, there's going to be an echo where the Egyptians actually become enslaved to Joseph. And so this theme gets, it gets echoed, um, and this happens all throughout. The point is, when you hear a story knowing how it, it's, it's going to turn out, or know, knowing how the story began, it will help us to understand, I think, what the author is conveying, and it will help us to understand more deeply, more deeply, this story. So what we're going to talk about today are two halves. The first echo, the first half in, in, uh, Genesis, in Genesis 39, you see that D, we're going to talk about Joseph learning to rule himself. Learning to rule myself is the first half of our talk for today. But if you can pull that up one more time. At the end, we're going to look at the outcome of the story in Genesis uh, 47 and what it means to rule, uh, period. In other words, learning to rule myself is a prerequisite for learning how to rule in this world. There's this um, quote by uh, this pastor lived many, many years ago. When he read the story of Joseph he, Joseph, he recognized that the slave was able to rule an empire because the slave learned how to rule himself first. And the moral of this story is if we learn how to rule ourselves first, everything thereafter is footnote. If this first half of learning to rule me uh, is accomplished, then the second half, learning to rule, it, it will kind of fall into place. My experience has been that throughout life there are many challenges, there's many difficulties, but the hardest hill and the hardest battle, the biggest challenge for me to overcome in many ways was myself. Um, G.K. Chesterton was a, an English Christian. Um, back in the day there was a newspaper article that said, please, we would like to hear your opinion right into the, to the magazine Tell us, what is the problem in the world today? 
Is it the economy? Is it politics? Is it this or that? What's the problem? And G.K. Chesterton wrote in a, a letter. He said, dear sirs, the problem with the world today, one word, me. Me. And that was it. I think what we're hearing in that statement is that if I can learn to rule myself, the rest of the world will eventually take care of itself. If I can learn to rule me, learning to rule everything else will be a cinch. It'll be easy to rule, comparatively speaking. Now, I'm not saying that life is easy. There are a great many challenges, but the biggest challenge and the biggest horizon is conquering ourselves. And so with that, how about we look at Genesis chapter 39 as we enter into the story of Joseph and his first set of trials, the temptations that he will experience, and the outcome before we look at Joseph in the second half as he rules the Egyptians. Forget about that. Let's see if Joseph can take care of himself first. So listen to the word of the Lord as I read from Genesis 39, verse 1 to 6. This is the word of the Lord. Now Joseph had been, thrown, had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, captain of the bodyguard, brought Joseph to the, from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And Joseph was in the house of his master, Potiphar the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused everything Joseph did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And Potiphar made Joseph overseer over his entire house and everything that Potiphar owned he put in Joseph's charge. Now in verse 5, it came about that from the time Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house and over everything, the Lord actually blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon everything that he owned in the house and in the field, and so Potiphar left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him, he, uh, with Joseph there, Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. This is the word of the Lord. Actually, if, if someone can hook me up with a water, uh, my throat is a little parched. Thank you, Sir Anthony. What we see here is a clear sense of blessing on Joseph's life. And maybe this shows us that Joseph uh, has submitted himself, thank you, sir, to God. And therefore, God's blessing is coming down heavy on Joseph because Joseph is just a good person. Especially last week, we read an important, important chapter, chapter 38. Um, we're talking about Judah, the brother. When we contrast the two, we see blessing in Joseph's life, especially compared to his brother. Pardon me. But what I want to clarify is just because Joseph is blessed, it does not mean, it does not mean um, that it does not mean that he has surrendered his life to God. Just because we experience blessings in our life does not mean that the blessing will continue permanently. It does not mean that we're living um, in a good way just yet. Joseph certainly is a child of God. He certainly identifies through his, his uh, grandfather, Abraham. He identifies with the God of Israel. But the thing is, this is a young man still in t under, under the test. He's still being tested. 
Now, even though, even though you might start off your life good, you have blessing, good things are happening, that does not mean I've arrived. It does not mean that I've done or lived or conducted myself righteously. The test is still ongoing in Joseph's life. So let's see what happens. This test is hatched now in verse 6 with the words, quite simply, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Um, I recently went to watch with my family um, the new Men in Black movie, and um, the whole thing seemed to be kind of a play on, uh, is his name Chris Hemsworth? Is that right? And this is obviously somebody who was dipped in gold when he was born. Handsome in form and appearance, where you really could have the world at your beck and call. When you look a certain way, when you have certain advantages. But the test happens in verse 7, where the world notices, but in particular, Potiphar's wife looks at Joseph with desire. And she says the same phrase, two words in Hebrew that get repeated twice, as Elder noticed this morning in Sunday school. The, word in he, the words in Hebrew, shukva uh, ami, lie with me. Now, lie with me means much more than just come here and lie down. Um, actually, it implies copulate with me. And so here's the test, and Joseph uh, hatches, the, hatches the trap, and he answers and re refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. He's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? So, um, you know, back in the day, there was a movie um, uh, with Dustin Hoffman that kind of played out this exact scenario. I don't, I don't remember the title. I never saw the movie. Mrs. Robinson? Does anybody know what that movie was? The Graduate, right. Okay, so somebody's seen the movie. Um, you as I understand, I, I haven't seen the movie, but I think this is that scenario. How does this plot, how does this kind of situation unfold as Joseph is in this, as he's in this kind of in the, in the wiles of this temptress? And then he says this statement, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? I think what we're seeing here is Joseph... Um, he has some ethical basis, some foundation. He recognizes that if I were to do this, it would be an offense against the Almighty. He has this thing called the fear of God. And if you've read the book of Proverbs, which is the Jewish book of wisdom, this is essentially the foundation. In chapter 1 of Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the thing is, Joseph, he could have his logic like this. Because if I was in his shoes, I might say, well, here's the thing. I was good when we started. I was a good person, but I ended up here in Egypt, and I didn't deserve this, and I'm in, a, I'm in slavery, and why is it that good things, um, or rather bad things, happen to good people? So if this is how God's justice works bad things happen to good people, then conversely, good things can happen to bad people. There is no justice in the world, and therefore, why should I fear God? And if that's how justice works, and if that is how God works, maybe there is no God, 
then what does it matter if I shuck va me or lie with this, you know, why, well, what's, 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 how bad could it be if I just comply? But the thing is, Joseph fears the Lord. And he says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? And what we see is that he does not sleep with this woman because he fears God and his laws, which I think shows us that Joseph has had a recognition. Not so much, just hang with me here, not so much that I'm good and bad things happen to me, but I think the recognition that Joseph has is I'm still a work in progress. Maybe I'm still not there yet. Maybe I made a mistake with my brothers. Maybe there's something on my side of the road. Maybe there is something on my face. Maybe there's something that I still have yet to learn. He still fears God. Because he fears God, he's able to make this choice. He's learning to rule himself. And learning to rule ourselves must start, I believe, with that ethical foundation from Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, in this day and age, in our secular era that we live in today, there's a lot of gray. We can live in the gray. And I've, you know, I shared this in Sunday school again this morning. You know, as long as I've been living on this earth, I think at the beginning I lived very much in the gray, but the older I'm getting, I'm starting to realize that it is true. If we persist in choosing the wrong way in life, we will reap harmful things. But living in a good way results in blessing. So fear the Lord. It's not complicated. Up is still up. Down is still down. If we try to muddle things, we will suffer. I will suffer. I'm not saying that God will punish you. I'm not saying that this is... I think God knows what's in our best interest. And therefore, he's teaching. He's teaching in the book of Genesis, hey, you know, don't sleep with the master's wife. It's not in your best interest. It's good for you. Do you want the blessing to continue? And so Joseph chooses the good, but not without a fight. And we see that the temptation persists. Why? Because Joseph still has to learn self-mastery. So listen to this process of temptation. Maybe it might sound, I mean, really, it might sound familiar to some of us, all of us. In verse 10, she spoke to Joseph day after day. But he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And it happened one day that Joseph went into the house to do his work. None of the men of the household were there. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Again, those same words. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled and he went outside. And so what we have here at this point in the story, in this ancient story, is yet again this, 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 this theme of a naked Joseph standing without his clothes. Does that sound familiar? Isn't it, isn't, isn't it funny how you have these repeated themes again and again that Joseph continually finds himself up the creek without his cloak and people using his clothes to perpetuate a lie against him? And the question that I'm asking myself, were I in Joseph's shoes, is why does this keep happening to me? Now, one reason might be because I'm perpetually making the same mistakes 
Or maybe the other answer is God is continually trying to show something, but whatever the case may be, I'm still kind of in the same pickle, in the same circumstance, literally caught with his pants down and his cloak used against him. Why does this keep happening to me? Now, you, you know, the thing about this, this naked Joseph, um, uh, in this situation, um, this is a very socially um, explosive story today, especially in a Me Too era. And I want to talk about this and visit this for a, for a bit because we look at, we look at um, this, this Potiphar's wife as kind of this dangerous woman, you know, dangerous woman of the Bible, as, as this kind of person that you don't go near because women are of a certain, you know, persuasion or they have a certain influence over men. But that's something that I think is kind of dangerous because last I checked, it was Joseph who's standing outside with his pants, you know, literally naked. And yet we, we, we portray the, the, the female, the woman, as the temptress or as the villain. I'm not alone in recognizing this. Throughout history and even rabbinic uh, interpretation, they've noticed that Joseph has an awful lot to say hanging around Potiphar's wife. If she's the master's wife, why are you having this long dialogue with her? That they've recognized that there is something strange about Joseph entering into the house when no one is around. And there is something strange about a naked Joseph in the end standing outside. So maybe there is something wrong with this interpretation that, that the woman is just the one that you want to stay away from and that this is a one-sided deal. Because last I checked, to be fair, the Bible is not afraid to discredit men, even if they were kings, for acting out. So it should be understood that just as much as it seems like the dangerous object here is the woman, men are equally culpable as dangerous. Men are equally culpable as unsafe. And in the end, whether it's Potiphar's wife, whether it's Joseph, the Bible, I think, presents us with a possibility that temptation is an equal opportunity thing, and it is not gender-specific. You know, there's lots of talk about this, like, you know, um, should a man and a woman be alone in a room together or traveling and all kinds of things. Yes, there's very realistic scenarios, but at the same time, um, this is not just a female thing. It's not. Maybe there's more to the story than we've traditionally interpreted. And, as I've said, students of the Bible going back even to the medieval period, as I understand, they've been wondering, what is Joseph doing hanging out in the house in the first place? So maybe there's more to this. And I think what this shows us is temptation as an equal opportunity, as an equal, it's not just gender-specific temptation. Uh, it covers a range of, of, of situations and scenarios. It's not just a female thing, it's a male thing. It's not just a male thing, it's a female thing. And it's not just a sexual thing. There's temptation in all different kinds of things, temptation uh, to cheat on our taxes, temptation to snap on the highway, temptation to uh, neglect, all types of temptations. And so what I want to talk about is as Joseph is learning to rule himself, 
he goes through these three, there's these three processes of temptation. What I want to say, it's the science of temptation. The science of temptation that applies when temptation uh, hits us, whatever the scenario is, whatever the sin, whatever the temptation is, these three things seem to be present. And I'd like to share them with you. They come from Scripture and possibly maybe even a little bit from my own personal experience. But the first thing is, we see in verse 10 that Potiphar's wife spoke to Joseph day after day. The first thing about temptation is that if you think it's going to come and go, you are mistaken. Temptation is unremitting. It's persistent. Temptation will not just visit us once. It will visit us daily. It will repeatedly, day after day, keep hitting us. If you're tempted on Monday to um, make a poor choice in some area of your life, it's probably going to come back on Tuesday. I would say put off whatever that temptation is until Sunday. Put it off until Sunday. Whatever it is, I'm going to, make, I'm going to cheat on my taxes. I keep, keep coming. Well, hold that decision off until Sunday evening. Let's see what this spirit says to you. But day after day, as the temptation returns, it will be unremitting for a time, for a time. The reprieve will come. The temptation will break. But just wait until Sunday. Sunday's coming. Friends, do you hear that? Sunday's coming. I mean, in the olden days, Sunday was where I got myself straight again. I needed to come to church on Sunday. I needed a bless up, a fill up. I needed ethical real. I needed the Holy Spirit who I firmly believe speaks to me in a powerful way to say, wake up, you've been crazy all week. Your head's been in the wrong frame of mind. This is the right choice to make. This is the discipleship path. Don't make a big decision until Sunday evening. The temptation is unremitting but a reprieve will come. So that's the first thing, day after day. Here's the second science of temptation. Boy, I know this. Friends, this temptation, it will be seemingly benign or innocuous. Let's say the temptation is, um, you know, we had a wonderful barbecue yesterday. But, you know, maybe, maybe I'll just cheat with, with that vegan vegan cheeseburger thing or that, that, was, that was being grilled up. The next thing you know, this innocuous, harmless thing becomes me kind of having to loosen my belt and I've gone all the way. It's seemingly benign and innocuous. I get this from, from verse 10. She speaks to Joseph day after day. He didn't listen. Listen to this. He didn't listen to lie beside her. Now, what, was, what, what, what were the exact words that Potiphar's wife used to invite to seduce Joseph? Shukva and me. Lie with me. But here it says he refused to lie beside her. And there's a subtle shift in preposition where it almost, you almost get the sense that maybe midway through the story, she's like, okay, okay, listen, we don't have to do all, we don't have to go all the way. Just come over here and sit right next to me. Good looking thing. Come over here and just sit right next to me and talk to me. Oh, that's harmless. 
Just come over here and play, and let's just, just talk to me a little bit. Just sit beside me. And that preposition, that subtle shift, others have recognized, students of the Bible have recognized, maybe that's her way of kind of trying to lessen, lessen the, 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 the temptingness of it or something. The temptation will oftentimes try to say, it's not a big deal, right? Just get a little taste. Don't go all, I'm not asking you to go all the way. I'm just asking you to just play around with this a little bit. So it's innocuous, it's benign. But friends, we have to be brutally and ruthlessly honest with ourselves. Am I playing with something that's going to set my hair on fire? Am I playing with something that's harmless, but I do it enough, and the next thing you know, I'm running around, my hair is on fire, the house is on fire. I cannot tell you how many times I've encountered, um, in particular, men who've shared with me that their, 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 hair is on, their house is on fire, literally, because they played with matches. All they did was play with matches. It's innocuous. It's benign. And now you're in trouble. Big, big trouble. You know, uh, Joseph, he could have quite easily went with this. Well, God threw me into slavery. I'm a good guy. There's no reason. And, you know, if bad things happen to good people, good things can happen to bad people, maybe I'll just lie down and just sit next to her. What will it matter? Joseph says, no, I fear God. I don't want things to get worse. I'm in bad enough trouble as it is. Can it get worse? I assure you, it can get worse. And so Joseph fears God. He says, no. And then the third thing is, at the very last moment, temptation gets aggressive. This has been, you know, I'm, I, I understand pastors were not built in factories. We're born out of the womb, just like everybody else. In my experience, yes, temptation, it screams loudest at the end. When you've said no to something enough times, you know that temptation is about to give up. Yes, it's about to give up when it gets angriest and loudest. When temptation gets angriest and loudest, just hang on. Make a phone call. Don't be isolated. Get out. Be with a friend. Do the next right thing because temptation's about to give up. It's about to give up. Temptation gets the most aggressive at the end, just before reprieve. You see that she catches him. That word in the Hebrew, it can be translated seized. Seized. And grabs, there's an aggressiveness at the last minute. Shukva on me, lie with me, lie with me. <laughs> Goes from lie with me to come here, lie beside me, to lie with me. But hang on, because temptation is going to give up soon. Sunday's coming. And through this whole story, we see that Joseph is learning to master himself. Because there's a science to this. There's a science to self-mastery. The famous statement from the first two brothers ever to live, Cain and Abel. When Cain is thinking, should I kill Abel or should I not? Maybe I'll wait till Tuesday. Should I kill Abel today? I don't know. Day after day, the temptation comes back. I really hate his guts. Should I kill him today? 
come Thursday, come Friday, God's knocking on Cain's door. Actually, it's not God, but God says, sin is knocking at your door. It's crouching. It wants to mass, it wants its desires for you, but you must master it. You have to pass this test, Cain. Who knows that if Cain mastered this test, that maybe through the lineage of Cain would have come Abraham and all the great things in the Bible. But no, he's not able to master it. Because before Sunday morning, what does he do? He kills his brother. He couldn't wait. Maybe he held out until the very end, but temptation got so aggressive, and he just had to, she just gave in. But Joseph, no, I cannot do what Cain did. I've heard the old stories. I have to master me. I have to master me. I have friends who are recovering alcoholics, drug addicts, everything. I have interesting friends. And they have a saying when they go to those 12-step meetings. When you look up on the walls, you know, there's different things. that the AA slogans, they call them. One of the slogans is think, think, think. Isn't that neat? So put yourself in those shoes, like I'm so tempted. Right now it's Miller time, I really could use a drink. Think, the last time I said this, I ended up under the bridge. Think, this is really going to hurt tomorrow morning. Think, this is going to hurt my family. Think, 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 think it through. Joseph thinks it through. He recognizes that if I do this, life, yes, it could get worse. He's learning to rule and master himself. Now, I just want to wrap this first heading up. How does this turn out? You think that it would turn out wonderfully with blessing, that Joseph, everything works out great for Joseph. Actually, he gets thrown into prison. Chapter 39, verse 20. Joseph's master, listening to his wife, he took Joseph and threw him in, this, in the jail. But listen to this. This is cool. The word jail in the Hebrew, it's, it, it starts with, in the Hebrew, that, that word is um, bait sohar, bait, bait, like Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Or like if you've ever seen a synagogue, Beit Shalom, the house of Shalom, or Beit Israel. Beit means house. That word bait is in there. What it means, it literally translates that Joseph was thrown into the prison house or the house of the prison. But whose house is it, is the question. Now look at the passage, that last verse, chapter 39, verse 20. Whose house is this? It's the king's prison house. So what we have here is Joseph starting out, and these are echoes, echoes. I've told you, there's echoes and echoes and echoes. It's fun when you learn to read and see these things. Joseph starts in Potiphar's house. And Joseph said, I've got a sweet deal here. I could just live here and be the master of, this, of, of Potiphar's house. But in God's plans, God needed to transition Joseph from one house to another house, to the prison house, but it was the prison house of Pharaoh. It was the king's prison. And so there's this transition from the house of Potiphar to the house of uh, the prison house of the Pharaoh, ultimately to the house of Pharaoh, where Joseph would be positioned. Yes, the word is intentionally positioned 
to wind up in a place of influence, of important influence. Joseph, friends, is being expanded, like I had to you know, loosen my belt after dinner yesterday. You ever hear the expression, you know, don't get too big for your britches, right? I would say grow into your britches. Britches are pants. That's like the old-fashioned word. You know, if, if you're too big for your britches, that, that's, you know, in other words, your ego, you're, you're inflated. I think it's good and wise to live life to always wear pants a little bit oversized. I think it's good to grow into things throughout our life. Because the moment you grow too big for one house, God can elevate you into the next, into the next size up. And you can grow into that. And then God will elevate you to the, next, to the next place, to the next house. And you can grow into that. Better to grow into things as opposed to saying, hey, you know, I've, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm too big for my britches. I'm boasting. Grow. Transition. Joseph is growing into his britches. Therefore, God has to keep upgrading his house. From Potiphar's house to the prison house to the house of Pharaoh, God's setting the stage. Friends, this is something that happens to all of us. Some of you, even now, as you are learning in your own life, ethics, fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, self-mastery. As, you are in, 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 as, as, this is, as you're learning this, God is gradually, God is gradually, yes, giving you bigger and bigger and bigger responsibilities. Bigger and bigger responsibilities. How does this look in Joseph's life? As Joseph masters himself, what are the big responsibilities that Joseph is given? This brings us to our second half, learning to rule. This to me is very interesting. It's very, very um, applicable, especially at this present time as we have all of these democratic candidates vying with new interesting and crazy policy ideas to transform our nation. It reminds me of Joseph. Listen to this. Listen to the echo. In Genesis 47, the end of the story, we will see how Joseph learns to rule or how he's learned to rule now that he's mastered himself. So listen to the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 47 in verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And he bought the money into Pharaoh's house. What we have in the beginning here is Joseph exercising some serious policy change. Now mind you, this is after everything. This is at the end of the story, after the reunion, after the reconciliation. Joseph and his brothers are back with them. His father is with them. This is really interesting. Um, recently, I, I was, I was um, with my brother on vacation, and um, I love my brother dearly. And I hadn't seen him in a number of years. And seeing my brother with his own child and with a daughter, you know, with a little girl, 
and seeing him in his own growth of responsibility. Isn't it, wouldn't it be interesting to see your long-lost brother, your youngest brother, after all these years, and he's commanding the nation, like your youngest brother became like the president or prime minister. And so they're all watching Joseph do his thing. What does he do? The first thing he does is centralize commerce. He establishes a federal monetary system. Now, Egypt was already wealthy, but this is the beginning of this rising economic and political power. And it's all under Jewish influence. All under biblical influence. And the beginning of Joseph's mastery of Egypt I think we see it happening here because this is somebody under biblical inspiration had learned to rule himself. Learning to rule ourselves I think reflects in how we're able to rule. Whether it's our company, whether it's our office, whether it's our family, whether it's the country. Learning to rule. We continue in verse 15. The money was all spent. The Egyptians came to Joseph and they said, give us food. We don't want to die. Our money is gone. So Joseph says, okay, here's what we're going to do. New policy ideas. He says, give up your livestock. And it, the, you know, the, the, the text is clear to mention here. These are not just sheep and goats, which they could have eaten, but animals which they could not have eaten, like Nilgai, right? Or like horses and, and donkeys, So give this to the government and we'll give you grain in exchange. So we have this federal trade-in program. This remarkable remarkable trade-in program, this this policy idea that understand this is is akin to the Great Depression in America. And uh, this was prior to World War II when you had these kind of unsettling economic conditions that not just, to, not just in America, but all throughout the Western world, in Europe as well, um, the economics of things were all kind of crazy and out of whack. And at this time, the introduction of new ideas. What does the government need to do right now? What do we need? Should we depend on the government to turn things around? There was a, a British economist a British economist named Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, and he began to talk about these ideas. You know, if the government would just stimulate spending in some areas, maybe even overspend, it would trigger um, revitalization of the market and the economy over here. Now, this is a thing. I, I've heard about this, that how, you know, if you wanted to affect the auto industry, you know, maybe buy, buy up certain things here. In other words, the beginning of macroeconomics transformed transformed the nation. The government, I I wouldn't go so far as to argue for government complete over-involvement. That's not where I would go with this. But some amount of regulation, some amount of stimulus is necessary from a macro level in order to jumpstart an economy. I think what we're seeing here is that Joseph, with the wisdom that's given to him by God, as he's learned to rule himself, now has the capacity to jumpstart a nation. That he's able to turn things around. 
in a macro level. The point that I want to drive home, friends, and this is the fill in the blank, is that biblical wisdom, it can inform macroeconomic policy. Biblical wisdom can inform medical ethics. Biblical wisdom can inform climate change, oil companies. Biblical wisdom can inform policy decisions. It can and should inform a lot of these things, uh, student loans, the things that are coming up in the democratic debate, marriage laws, all of these things. Biblical wisdom can and should inform. Now look at it. Look at the pickle that our nation is in on so many big-ticket items. Take, for example, climate change and these proposals for these green new deals. To me, it seems like these are very mutually exclusive. Either we save the planet or we keep guzzling oil. It seems like it's either one thing or another, and I think that there's a lot of naivete about that. It, well, basically, if we want to shut down all of the vehicles or turn them all electric overnight, you know, then what about, what about uh, other nations that are industrializing? There's a lot of stuff to talk about here. But the question that I'm bringing up is, is there a Joseph? Is there a Joseph? I mean, friends, honestly, I don't, see the, I don't see a Joseph on the platform yet. But it doesn't have to come from the government. Why does it need to come from the government? Is there a Joseph in the private sector? Is there a Joseph that says there is a way where we can continue to develop the nations around the world so that we can lessen poverty, but at the same way, we can, on the same token, there are innovative ways where we can reduce reduce climate change or re reduce some of the harmful effects. Maybe there is a way where oil can actually contribute to good. Is there an innovative way where we can talk about socialized medicine? Oh my gosh, you put the two wrong words together. Is there a way where we can talk about healthcare as a right for all, but at the same time not, not stymie um, the, the economy? Is there a way where we can facilitate continued medical innovation while at the same time providing healthcare for all? No, it's impossible. It's impossible to save Egypt. There's no solution. But there was a Joseph. There was a Joseph. There was a Joseph that was able to think about oil and climate change. There was a Joseph that was able to think about socialized medicine and progress. There was a Joseph that was able to think about equality and yet, you know, having standards for things like marriage and so on and so forth. There needs to be a Joseph. But Josephs are not born by good policy ideas. I don't care how good your ideas are. I am not convinced that you can carry your policy ideas forward if you are not an ethical person who has learned to rule yourself. We have enough. Oh, good Lord, I'm getting into politics. I need to stop here. We don't need politicians with good ideas and yet who have not ruled themselves. We need people like the philosopher kings spoken of in the old days who knew how to rule well but also knew how to rule themselves well. People who have an ethical foundation and can make policy based on good ethical foundation. We need Josephs. Now again, I don't want to talk about politics because I don't think the answers have to come from the government. The answers can come from you, from the family, from the private sector. The decisions, the things that change our society need Josephs who've learned to rule themselves, who can stand and 
change the course of a nation. And it doesn't have to come from the government. It can come from the private sector. It can come from the family. It can come from obscure characters like Tamar. Remember last week, who changed the narrative? Who flipped the script? Who saved Israel? It wasn't Judah. It wasn't a man. And it wasn't a powerful person. It was a disenfranchised, possibly foreign-born woman who was a widow. She flipped the script. She changed the whole narrative. Friends, we need Joseph in every sector of society. In the family, we need Josephs that are male and female. We need Josephs who are able to transform their industries. Why? Because they've learned how to rule themselves, and now they know how to rule. It's as simple as that. Biblical wisdom can inform all of these things. But let me wrap this up. There's so much more. If I continue reading the rest of chapter 47, we see that Joseph, he institutes um, mobility, central planning. He moves people into the city, urban development. The economic and the political system, it evolves into, you know, into like thousands of years later, this, this new form of medieval serfdom. All these things, you know... When I was in school recently, I, I, I learned about this, this, this person. His name is Abraham Kuyper. He lived, I think, in the 1700s in Dutch somewhere. And he was a pastor, and he was a teacher and a scholar. He was also prime minister. He was also founder of a seminary and a university. What are you doing in your spare time? I mean, I hear about this character. He was, you know, he founded like pretty much every school in the Netherlands or something like that. And he was prime minister and he instituted this new system. And he happened to be a pastor. My goodness. But the thing that I think drives this home for me so powerfully is at the close. In this beautiful way, all these great things that Joseph does, and incidentally, the Egyptians at one point. They get, the famine gets so bad, they sell themselves to Joseph and to Pharaoh. So here you have this echoing. So in the beginning, Joseph is sold to the Egyptians as a slave. Now the Egyptians are sold to Joseph. It's this complete reversal. And Joseph doesn't say, see, I told you so. He doesn't rub it in. We know that because this, the Egyptians, you know what they say in verse 25? They just sold their lives, all their property, and on top of that, they're paying a 20% tax. And they're saying, you've saved our lives, which is crazy. They've given everything over. And in the end, they say to Joseph with gratitude, you've saved our lives. You've saved our lives. But it's not just the people of Egypt who Joseph has saved. It's his family. Listen to this. In verse 27, we wrap up with this. Joseph's father, Jacob, lived in Egypt. He was fruitful. He acquired property there. They became very numerous. And Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years. There's another echo. How old was Joseph when he was sold into slavery? 17. And there's yet another echo. As one commentator puts it, Joseph was in Jacob's lap for 17 years. Jacob would be in Joseph's lap for 17 years. 
Anyone with aging parents understands what this means. That Joseph was man enough in the end to take care of his mom and his dad. Uh, his mom. Uh, his dad. For 17 years. As long as dad took care of him, as long as he sat in dad's lap, dad would sit in Joseph's lap. You know, I think about that, that the greatest thing that I will do with my life, it's not really, you know, building this great thing or that great thing or having a Wikipedia page <laughs> or, you know, this many followers on Twitter. The greatest thing at the end of my life will be that my son and my daughter still love me and that I took care of my old man and my, and my mother in old age, 17 years. That the great legacy that we have is the good that we do to those closest to us. Joseph didn't just learn in the end how to take care of a nation. He learned how to take care of his family. I mean, isn't that a story? Like top corporate executive. He takes care of his company, takes care of everybody except his own family. I mean, what a, what a testimony. No, I'm being sarcastic. What good is it in the end if I take care of the nation but don't take care of my own people, my, 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 my family? Joseph, in the end, cares not only for his nation, he cares for his people, his family, his father. Worship team, I want to invite you back up. This is a summer of teaching. The Genesis, Joseph's story, it's a summer of teaching biblical principles. I want to finish off with a few biblical principles I think that we can remember. So there's a few things maybe that we would take with us as we leave today. The first thing would be fear God. Fear God. This is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God. I, I'm not saying that dogmatically. I'm saying that from experience. I tried to fight the law and, you know, that kind of thing, and I didn't win. And I've learned at this point Fear God, it's worth it. The second thing I would say is hang on, Sunday's coming. Ooh, I'm so tempted, so tempted. That pie has been sitting on my counter. Just wait till Sunday. God will speak to you about that piece of pie. Just wait till Sunday. Sunday's coming. Fear God and wait till Sunday. But the last thing is, is there a Joseph? Is there a Joseph today? Is there a Joseph who can lead a new way forward. Someone that doesn't just have good policy ideas, but someone that's ruled themselves. You can tell this is a woman of integrity. This is a man who's practiced keeping his word. This is a woman that knows how to take feedback. This is a man who's overcome temptation in his life. This is somebody that fights, not people, but themselves, that fights the devil. We need Joseph's. So fear God. Sunday's coming. Is there a Joseph? Fear God. Sunday's coming. Is there a Joseph? Mm -hmm.